All right, Jesse, last week's billionaire Harris had all sorts of wild drama. What do you have for me this time? When a beloved mother and music teacher is found dead at the bottom of her basement steps in her home in Palo Alto, California, the authorities initially believe that it is an accident. However, when troubling forensic evidence suggests that that could not possibly be the case, the detectives work to determine who the killer is and the long-kept secret that may have motivated the crime. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about secret trysts, crazy twists, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we're so excited as always this week to welcome and shout out a wonderful new set of patrons. Welcome to Mary Beth O and April C, Amberlyn M and Mia C, and Judith K and Christina K. Welcome! Nice to have you guys here, and thanks for tuning in. I'm very excited about this episode. You know I love a twist. Yep, there's a lot of twists and turns in this one. I think I've had this book for a long time. The book I'm using today is called Blood Will Tell by Carlton Smith, because I used to work in Palo Alto and when I lived in San Francisco. And it's a pretty ritzy place. This crime takes place in 2000. So it was still by then, even though it's, it would probably wasn't as expensive as it is today, it was still pretty, pretty tony. Pretty spicy up there in Palo Alto. Yeah, they already had like, you know, the big dot com stuff going on there. So are you starting to get into your like West Coast crime where you like every year? I think I have inadvertently been kind of trying to move on over to the West Coast a little in my mind because I'm going to be going to California in a couple weeks to spend my birthday with Andy. With like three hours of your birthday. Yeah, but then a whole week afterwards. <laughs> yeah, we'll just celebrate your birthday on the 11th. We're going to celebrate my birthday all week. We're going to pretend I'm 21 again and you get a whole week for your birthday. I love it. Okay, well, enough about me and my very exciting upcoming trip, and let's get into the case, shall we? Let's. At 1.30 p.m. on May 5th, Cinco de Mayo in 2000, Ken Fitzhugh pulled his large suburban up to a home shared by his friends, Carol and Galen. That night was Galen's birthday party, a perfect time to celebrate as it nearly coincided with the holiday. And kindly Ken had offered to drive the women to San Jose to pick up the rented party equipment. I guess they were doing some sort of casino type night. So they had this gambling equipment they were going to get. Fun. Very fun. White-haired Ken always struck Galen as a kind of funny driver for the gigantic SUV because he was a five foot four kind of slender dude. So it was kind of like a little guy, huge car situation. I mean, that happens. So I feel like that's not 
an anomaly. I don't think it's weird looking. I think it's funny the other way. When you see like a gigantic man in a very teeny tiny like toy convertible. Yeah, like a sports car. Yeah, like a big old football player in a tiny little sports car. I think that's hilarious. They might be overcompensating. (laughs) That's what I always think. Well, Ken was reliable and responsible. Carol and Galen were more closely affiliated with Ken's wife of more than three decades, and her name was Christine. The three women had taught together, and they had become very close friends. Ken and Christine had become mentors and somewhere between besties and parents to them because they were enough older that they were kind of like parents to them, but they were also close like best friends. They had a long-term, very loving relationship, Ken and Christine, and it seemed to Carol and Galen that they were really couple's goals. Actually, Ken said as they pulled away from the curb, do you mind if we stop by our house? He then told Carol and Galen that Christine's school had actually just called him and she had missed her 1250 class. They all agreed that that was not like considerate, organized Christine at all. So it was worth definitely stopping by the house to see if she had had some sort of accident. She had maybe laid down and taken a nap or something. There had to be some good reason for this. So Ken double parked and said he was just going to jump out for a second and just holler around the house. He then popped into the pretty house on Escobita Avenue. But after only about a minute or two, Ken was at the front door once more and this time screaming for help. Oh, no. So at first, Carol and Galen thought he was joking or something. It just seemed so extreme and so out of character and out of place in this beautiful neighborhood. But then when he kept yelling, all of a sudden they were confused, shocked, a little scared. But they went running into the house. They saw him as they went into the front door, kind of run down the basement. And when they peeked in through the basement door and looked to the bottom of the stairs, to their horror, that's where their very, very good friend, Christine, was lying in a pool of blood. Ugh. So Carol went on to call 911 while Galen and Ken attempted to perform CPR on the fallen teacher. There was just so much blood. Galen was in shock, but she and Ken did go through the motions of what was soon very clearly a doomed attempt at CPR. Could they see, like, what was wrong at all or no? By all accounts, it looked like she had fallen down the stairs. Yeah, that's what I was curious, if it just kind of looked like she took a tumble. Yes, it was just surprising that there was so much blood given that that was what had happened. And Galen had been trained in CPR because she was a teacher, but she hadn't had to actually perform it in so long. And this was just such an extraordinary circumstance that everything that passed by happened kind of in a blur. Okay. I didn't know that teachers needed to learn CPR. I think so. Yeah. Teachers, lifeguards, anyone who's around students. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I just had no idea. So the one thing that Galen did remember, though, was that Ken was very focused on something completely else. He was screaming, those shoes, those goddamn shoes. And Uh Galen was really confused about this. And then he nodded at the stairs behind where they were and where Christine was lying. And there was a black sandal that was lying on its side on one of the stairs. But before Galen had time to react, the house was swarmed with emergency service personnel, firefighters, paramedics, police, you name it. They had arrived at the upper class locale in mere minutes. Great. So as I'm sure many of you know, Palo Alto is the home to some of the most brilliant minds and wealthiest individuals in the United States. 
Even before it became a tech capital of the world, it was home to Stanford University. Ken and Christine's neighborhood was filled with smart, ambitious people, definitely more of the staid, upper-class type, and not the kind of people who had criminal records or you'd think held dark family secrets, and definitely not the type of people who might murder their spouse. Or at least we'd like to think about our neighbors. Exactly. <laughs> like, come on. People of all different levels of wealth are murdering their spouses. I think <laughs> yep. we know that from this show, and it's one thing that we've definitely confirmed. I mean, look at just the last episode. <laughs> exactly. Like, <laughs> Yes, apparently having money doesn't make you less homicidal. Yeah, murder isn't defined by your class. Yes, it doesn't discriminate. At face value, it seemed clear that what had happened to Christine, a talented middle-aged music teacher dedicated to her students and family, was just simply a horrible, tragic accident. But Palo Alto police officer Sasha Priest just could not shake the feeling that something was awry. There was just so much blood. Too much blood for a tumble down the stairs. Indeed, forensics would prove that there was much more to this story. And then another type of scientific procedure would reveal a long-kept secret that gave way to simmering resentments and eventually an explosive rage that could not be contained. Bum, bum, bum. This is definitely one of those cases that highlights how you can never truly know what's going on behind closed doors, even with people who are your closest friends and sometimes family. Like I said, this is a book I've had, I've been hanging on to for a while, and obviously I was interested in it because I'm getting into that California state of mind here. And I looked up the Zestimate on this house that we're talking about on Escobita Avenue right now, and it is currently estimated to be worth $4.7 million. That is so much money. It's absurd. I think at the time of this story, which is taking place in 2000, it was worth more like around $2 million. It's still a lot of money for not being in, like, a major city. And I don't know how big it is, but... Well, also, I mean, they're not in tech. I mean, unfortunately, for artists and teachers and police officers, it has become impossible to live in Silicon Valley. And there's so many other places that we could talk about that, too. I was going to say, or buy a house at all. Yes, exactly. But yeah, even back then, $2 million, and I'm not even adjusting for inflation, is a lot for a real estate consultant and a music teacher. So again, the primary source today is the book Blood Will Tell by Carlton Smith. And I also watched a little Carlton Smith, a little Carlton Smith and another comforting old favorite. I watched a show Forensic Files. I think we say it every time, but that music just, it's like somebody is tucking me into a warm bed. It's a lullaby. It is. It's a lullaby. So the episode on Christine's case is called Hell's Kitchen, and it's season 14, episode three. Okay. So we're going to go back, and we're actually going to jump right into the aftermath of the discovery of Christine's body and the gut feelings of multiple first responders. This something just ain't quite right in the Fitzhugh basement. The homicide detectives arrived at the house around 2.45 p.m. Immediately, they knew that Christine's wounds were too severe and too plentiful to have been the result of an accident. They also noticed that there was no blood spatter or cast off, which suggested that both this was no accident in which 
she was creating injuries as she fell down the stairs and creating the cast off or that had there been foul play, clearly she had been murdered somewhere else and placed at the bottom of the stairs to stage the crime. Okay, so she, just to rule this out as well, she also wasn't attacked by a barn owl. <laughs> yes, this is the staircase part Do Just making sure that that's... Ruled. Yeah, this one, like, this one would be hard to convince with the old owl theory over here in the basement during the day in Palo Alto. You never know. Sounds like Clue. In the basement <laughs> in Palo Alto with the barn owl. All of those things don't equal up. No. Neither does the shoe. So there was also the shoe that Ken had pointed out to Galen, as well as a large antique ship bell that was kind of put out on the staircase. There was also some dry cleaning and school papers that were near Christine's body, but it wasn't in a very natural position where she would have dropped them. And the detectives also could not think of a reason why she would be carrying both the school papers and the dry cleaning down to the basement. That sounds exactly like something I would do. That you would be carrying your dry cleaning and your school papers and you would trip on an old, old antique ship bell. I was saying more, I would rather carry a bunch of stuff dangerously than take two trips. Yes. And I don't think that that's what they were talking about. It was more like there's not a desk in the basement. So why is she even bringing the papers down at all? Why would she be bringing everything? And dry cleaning is not necessarily something that you'd have to bring down to your laundry room. even. And I don't even know if the laundry was down there. Why wouldn't it be in her bedroom, her upstairs bedroom? Why wouldn't the papers be on her kitchen table or on her desk? I was just imagining my house because my bedroom's downstairs. So I think I was placing myself. You were. And I was like, I got to tell you, it's a basement. It's a regular basement with nothing in it except for maybe a washing machine. It's not a place you go to work. Yeah. Although shout out to all the people who work in their basement because I'm currently in a basement right now. So everything kind of seemed set up and it seemed like there was an excuse being made, like that she had a bunch of stuff in her arms. And either she had twisted her ankle on her shoe or she had hit this bell. And then because she had all this stuff in her arms, she wasn't able to break her fall or catch herself. It wasn't until a police officer spotted the appearance of small bloodstains on a pair of white sneakers shoved under Ken's seat in his Suburban, however, that they knew for sure that they had a homicide. All right. All right. So apparently one of the police officers, they had to ask, obviously, Ken to move his Suburban because he was double parked and the street was very narrow. So where he was parked, people could not get by. So the only time that anyone remembered him leaving the house was when he was asked to move his Suburban. A police officer watched him do this. And so he saw him come out, he opened the door, and he saw something poking out from underneath the driver's seat. He moved the car, and then later on, the same police officer was trying to get something from Christine's car. He had gotten permission to look in Christine's car for something. And he was clicking the keys that he had picked up, but it didn't actually unlock Christine's car. It unlocked the Suburban. Those were the keys oh, he picked up. Oh, my God. Stop it. And so he had kind of seen the sneakers before. He was a veteran officer. So he knew that this was not going to be used for evidence if he touched anything. But he opened up the door and he just took a little peek down and he saw these sneakers that had bloodstains on them. Then he shut the door and he immediately went to his supervisor, 
and said, get a warrant or get permission to search the Suburban as soon as possible because I didn't see anything, but I saw something. Yeah. I definitely didn't see something I in the vehicle. I definitely didn't see something in the Suburban <laughs> that we need to make sure is on the official chain of command here. And weren't they all in the Suburban or were they in a different car? No, they were in the Suburban. So, so they he, were in the car with the bloody shoes and like didn't yes. know. That is terrifying. And his dogs were in the back of the Suburban too. He had two small dogs, a Poodle and a Pomeranian that were in the, all the way back. So obviously the first thing they did was ask Ken if they could search his property, including both of the cars owned by the Fitzhughes. And he said, absolutely not. Oh, ballsy. That was a red flag right there for the investigators if they didn't already have enough. They thought at that point then obviously Ken has something to hide. And it wasn't just that. Ken's behavior was odd to the detectives as well. He was alternately prickly and rude and then he'd be like jovial and helpful but the one thing he did not seem to be doing is grieving or behaving at all like he was in any sort of shock he had been married to this woman for over 30 years and we talk about it all the time everyone displays grief differently there's no handbook to how you accept this information and how you get your mind around it. But it was more that he was getting intensely involved in asking a lot of questions about what they were doing and why they were asking questions and what was going on rather than really thinking about what had happened and how he was going to tell his family and the things that you would think somebody would be more interested in discussing and dealing with than the investigation. Yeah. And like, honestly, I don't even care about any of that. The fact that he won't let them search their car when someone potentially murdered your wife and you like would want to find out as much information as possible if you were innocent. Like that's the bottom line. Yeah. Most important thing. Absolutely. So they started by talking to Galen and Carol about the events leading up to finding Christine's body, as well as their relationship with the Fitzhughes, and just in general how they thought Ken and Christine got along. Galen and Carol reported that they had known the Fitzhughes for nearly a decade, and they had become something like extended family. Christine was an accomplished pianist, and she was a music teacher who taught at a couple different Palo Alto elementary schools. But she was just somebody who would, I think, like so many of our wonderful teachers out there, obviously donate her own musical instruments and pay for all of the supplies and volunteer her time. She was just somebody who was so, so incredibly giving. They said that there was also just a big light around her. She was super social. She took great care of herself. She loved working out. They said Ken was a smart guy, but he was way less social than his wife. They said that Ken did something in real estate, but they weren't entirely (laughs) sure exactly what he did. But they knew that the Fitzhughes were well off and they believed that Ken might have inherited from some very wealthy relatives. Okay. So that's how they got the money for the casa. For the fancy house. Yep. Which, by the way, these houses in Palo Alto, I got to tell you guys, they aren't even that fancy, which is the rub. You're looking at like a nice house. This is certainly a nice house. But- In any other neighborhood in America, it would not cost even a million dollars, I'm pretty sure. Wow, that's insane. So, like, two times what it is. I drive away and drive around and just like Zillow, and I was like, what? (laughs) 
so I got to move. <laughs> Just not realistic, you know? I know. It's supply and demand, though, because it's – I don't know how it is anymore. I mean, I moved in 2017, but obviously if this house is now worth $4.7 million, it's still obviously very inflated, the market there. Anywhere that's close to proximity to these big tech companies are going to have employees that can pay that type of dough for a house. That's wild. Yeah. So, yeah, they don't know exactly what he does. They think that he inherited money from his relatives. And Galen and Carol were both separately interviewed, but they said the same thing, basically. They thought that Ken and Christine seemed incredibly happy with one another. They were devoted to one another. It seemed like they had no financial issues or stress. And they had raised two lovely sons who were both at that time in great colleges. Their eldest, Justin, was about to graduate. When asked about possible love affairs, the close friends just laughed. Affairs? Now that was impossible. They said absolutely no. No way. While Ken was still not consenting to a search of his property, he did go down to the police station for an interview. Ken explained that Christine had left the house to go teach at 10 a.m. And then he had left the house around 11 in the morning to check out a real estate project he was interested in. He had brought his dogs with him and he had received a phone call from Christine's school around 1 p.m. I think it was like 12.51 p.m. that Christine had missed her class. Then, of course, he had gone to pick up Galen and Carol as they had all previously planned. And at that point, he told them what was going on and they decided to stop by the Fitzhugh house. Okay. Well, this all sounds fairly straightforward and reasonable. Ken's behavior and temperament were kind of bizarre. In one instance, he corrected a detective who referred to Christine in the present tense. So somebody was asking how Christine is or what she's like, and he said, was. She was. Past tense. Quote. Wow. I feel like that's usually opposite how that happens. Yes. It was very jarring. I mean, the obvious reason being that he's just found out it's been mere hours since he found his wife dead, and he's already insisting on somebody use the grammatically correct past tense to refer to her. Yeah, you're sus, dude. Yeah. So that set off some alarm bells. But the very, very weirdest thing was when they asked him about how he found Christine and he went absolutely friggin' batshit about these black sandals Christine had allegedly been wearing. They look like, kind of like slides with like a simple platform. Okay. So yeah, he's talking about how he found her at the bottom of the stairs and how she did not appear to be breathing. And then he looked up to the stairs and he said, so then I saw the black shoes. And he starts screaming, the goddamn black shoes. Oh, he's a theater major? Oh my gosh, Andy. So I had read about this and I think maybe listened on the Audible. But I had not witnessed it until I watched the forensic files. And it was like even more bizarre than I had pictured. He was beating his fists on the table in the police station going, the goddamn black shoes. Like it is completely unhinged. And to the point that, first of all, Galen and Carol were also at the police station. They heard screaming down the hall. And some officers got up and rushed to the room because they thought something violent was going on. That is how intense 
this screaming about these black shoes was. I love that they have that recorded. I mean, it's worth watching the forensic files just for that clip. I'm sure you can find it online, too, if you Google it. So he went on to say that the shoes were dangerous, often causing Christine to trip, and he had long wanted her to get rid of them. But it was just very out of place, this exchange. And then he went back to basically sitting down and having a normal conversation. Oh, my God. And he thinks that he's acting normal. I I guess so. This is very like Macbeth out damn spot over here. And interesting because, I mean, I don't think it's any secret here, guys, that his shoes with the blood on them in his car might be part of the evidence that's going to sink him. And he's screaming about her shoes. Yeah. The irony is thick. It's as thick as his white hair. He's got a lot of white hair, guys. So the detectives were really on high alert. Like, number one, I'm sure their adrenaline was through the roof after, like, being screamed at for no reason (laughs) about black shoes. But also that this, everything that's going on is suspicious. Everything. And he's so very clearly trying to tell them a story. Like, they're like, well, what do you think happened? And he's like, well, I just brought this bell in the other day and maybe she didn't realize it was there and the shoes and she was probably bringing her dry cleaning and her papers down and this happened and that happened. And we've talked about it before, but whenever somebody tries to explain how an accident happened or they have this long convoluted story about how something might have happened, they're always digging their own grave here. Yes. Yeah. We always say just let the police do their job. Don't try to solve the case for them because you're just sticking your foot in it. (laughs) So the other thing that was weird about this initial interview is that they're trying to get a sense of this relationship. So they're asking him questions about Christine and her state of mind and, you know, where they were in their lives. Did they ever argue? And he's saying, you know, we had some hard times when the guys were younger, when our sons were younger, because... One really liked to study, one didn't. And it was really hard to like make sure that they were both academically motivated and treat them the same and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, now everything's been great. They're both in college. They're doing fantastic. In fact, her oldest son is about to graduate. And they were like, oh, her oldest son is your oldest son, not yours. Mm. And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. He's mine. They're both my children. And they were like, okay, let's put a pin in that. But everything is coming across strange from that to correcting about the grammar to especially the screaming about the shoe. Everything about this interview is off-putting. So meanwhile, back at the house on Escobita Avenue, the medical examiner had arrived and confirmed the first responder's suspicions. There was no way that this was an accidental fall. She was able to pretty much right away designate the death a homicide, which gave police basically the authority at that point to request search warrants because it's now being investigated as a homicide. Yeah. Later, an autopsy would reveal seven separate lacerations to Christine's head, as well as a skull fracture and lots of bruising to her face that was consistent with somebody facing somebody who was hitting them with their right hand over and over again. Um, okay. Well... Potentially, you could say somehow that maybe she had gotten these bruises and these lacerations due to a fall, kind of, I think somebody could argue, although it would take a lot. But more obvious that this was not the work of an accidental fall. 
was the evidence that Christine had been manually strangled. Oh, yeah, I think that would. I don't think a staircase is going to do that to you. Yeah, I think that would seal the deal. I don't even think an owl can do that to you. An owl definitely can't do it. Its little claws are too small. 52-year-old Christine Fitzhugh's official cause of death was multiple blunt force head injuries and manual strangulation. Poor woman. After the search warrants were issued, the police were able to recover the bloodstained sneakers from the Suburban. They also found a bloodstained shirt and a paper towel that had blood on it as well, all wedged underneath the driver's seat. Do they think they're his shoes or her shoes? They look like his shoes. Oh, my God. I mean, how stupid can you be? So we're going to get into this later, like what the cops and the prosecution's theory is versus what the defense says. And then also, of course, like the middle ground. And I do not think he was really thinking this through. Okay, so maybe it wasn't premeditated. So the prosecution says it was premeditated and we'll get into reasons why. But I don't think it was because this was very poorly executed. Galen and the cops had noticed that Ken had been wearing white athletic socks with black dress lovers that day, which is an unusual combination. Maybe some people like that look, but Galen and Carol said that they had never seen Ken wearing white socks with black dress loafers before. Yeah, no normal male does that. <laughs> it's not like, like a normcore look. <laughs> I mean, it is a normcore look, but like for a trendy... Hipster, not for... Not for, not for like, a man pushing 60 in Palo Alto in 2000. No? Who maybe That's not where they got estate. it? That's not where those, those normcore hipsters got it? Yeah, so they said that was unusual for him. Like, usually he wore white socks with his white sneakers, and he wore black dress socks with his black dress shoes, obviously. So they, at that point, speculated that maybe he had been... Wearing the white socks, the white sneakers, somehow he got blood just on the sneakers and he was in a hurry, so he changed quickly into the loafers. So yeah, now that they got these shoes and a shirt and a bloody paper towel, they said, we're going to have to bring Jan back down to the station, Ken, and we're going to have another conversation. Yeah, one where you're not abusing our table. And <laughs> Well, he said that he has no idea how these items got into his Suburban. Which is going to be a big question mark because he had been in the Suburban to pick up Galen and Carol. They had come back. They had been in the car with him. And that the only time I think he was back in the Suburban was when people were watching him move it. And then he was back in the house. Now, this is going to come up in conversation. Were police officers watching him this whole time? Wasn't there a time possibly where he could have, after this event... When he had found his wife covered in blood and had tried CPR, was there at some point some time for him to, for no good reason, slip away and put some bloody items in his car for some reason, but it had a more innocent explanation than him not knowing what to do with the evidence and shoving it underneath his car seat after he killed his wife and then going to pick up her friends? Yeah. Yeah, so that's what he's going to need to find, that more innocent excuse. Or is he going to use that all that they were planted there? At this point, everything's game because he does not have a master plan. And they told him, look, you can say you don't remember how these things got in your car or what's going on. But if we run DNA on the blood, on these shoes and on the shirt, and it's Christine's, 
you realize that this is going to look pretty bad for you. So you should at least tell us whose blood it is. Because if it's your blood, no big deal. And he was like, well, pretty sure it's Christine's blood. They're like, okay, can you give us a reason why Christine's blood would be on your shoes and on your shirt? And he said that they had recently been gardening together when Christine had cut her hand badly on, I think, some gardening shears or something. And that he had used his shirt to help stem the bleeding and maybe a little blood got on his sneakers while this was happening. However, the spot that he indicated, I think it was like the webbing of her hand between her thumb and index finger, was not injured. So the place that he said where the injury had happened, where this poor woman had just a multitude of horrific injuries, he could have picked any one of the ones he had inflicted on her, instead picked a place where she actually did not have an injury. So in the house, the police found just a little bit of blood. So they were looking, because they did not think at this point that the actual murder occurred in the basement, like we said. So they're looking all over the house to try to figure out, did the murder occur in the house? And if so, where? And they found just a tiny little bit of blood that was on the base of the kitchen table. So they began to think that maybe this is where it had occurred. Yeah, because he could have strangled her there and then brought her downstairs or dropped her down the stairs or something. Yes, there's a ton of excuses. But they're like, now we're thinking it's the kitchen because also she had been at a class. And then she had gotten a muffin and a coffee from Pete's and then she'd come back. And it made sense that she would be like maybe at the kitchen table enjoying her morning break. And then she was supposed to go back for her afternoon classes. So this would make sense to her daily flow if something had occurred in the kitchen. Yeah. But there was no additional blood anywhere visible to the naked eye. So they brought in a forensic file favorite and the nightmare, my nightmare of hotel sheets everywhere. <laughs> Which, do you know what forensic tool they might be using when I say that, Andy? Yeah, the fluorescent light, duh. Yes, the luminol. 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 Yeah, so they sprayed some luminol and the whole kitchen lit up like a Christmas tree. Stop it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it told a story for sure. The most blood was in the kitchen where it appeared there had been a struggle. And that makes sense because Ken was 5'4". And Christine was 5'7". So it looks like she put up quite a fight. She had quite a few defensive wounds on her hands as well. So she was trying to fight him off. And you could tell by the blood. But there was a lot of blood because of how many times she was struck. Okay. And then it also appeared that he had likely brought her head down on something like a table or the floor. Because that was where she had most likely gotten the skull fracture. So it looked like the most blood was in the kitchen and then it appeared that she had been dragged to the basement door, which was not that far from where the kitchen and the front door were. And then she had been dragged down the basement stairs. And then there was evidence of cleanup attempts. Like you could see where the wipe marks are, where somebody is cleaning up the blood. On the stairs as well? No, only on the upstairs. Okay. Only in the upstairs, the kitchen. It was obvious that Christine had been 
murdered and they were trying to stage it as an accident because clearly the blood was not cleaned up in the basement or on the stairs, but it was cleaned up in the kitchen where it seems like the actual murder had occurred. Okay, so there was still blood on the stairs when... There was still blood on the stairs. It just wasn't the cast-off pattern. Like, when something happens, like, think about when you drop, like, a watermelon or something like that and how it... There's a movement to the liquid. One time a glass water bottle that I had had smoothie in it and it got heated up and it exploded in our kitchen. Yep. And there's still, like, fruit residue on my ceiling. Yeah, it's a very different thing than somebody being slowly dragged. Yeah. Down. The force of, is I mean, it's all like physics and stuff, but like the force of the hit is very different. So clearly somebody had tried to clean up all of this blood. And there was even, um, they said that there was like some little animal paw prints, like likely the Pomeranian had come into the kitchen while he was cleaning. And there was also some like sneaker marks, but not a perfect impression from what I gathered. But it was clear somebody had been wearing those shoes during the assault or the cleanup attempts because there were still some marks that they could find. After the DNA results came back that proved that the blood on the items found in Kent's Suburban were indeed Christine's, Ken was arrested for the murder of his wife. Good. Yeah, at this point, I mean, they're also thinking... He's going to go for a defense that says, basically, how do you know this wasn't a burglar? How do you know this wasn't just some intruder? And the police officers were like, burglars don't cover up or try to stage a crime scene. They get the hell out of there. Yeah. For two reasons. Number one, no one's connecting them to the crime anyway. So they're not going to be first in line to be accused. And number two, they don't know when the partner of the person or somebody else who lives in the home is going to come home. They're not going to risk it by spending minutes, hour, hours, or however long it takes to tidily clean this crime scene up. They're going to get the hell out of there. I'm pretty sure the cops have like a burglar checklist of like what indicates whether it's a stranger or someone close to the victim. Oh, for sure. There was just no, there was no forced entry. Nothing was taken. I mean, this is just obviously not. The list goes on and on. Yeah. The list goes on and on. So they already have her blood on his shoes. They've got the luminol evidence. They have everything they need to prove that Ken did this with the evidence. But the one thing they did not have was a motive. What about a murder weapon? I mean, it looked like he did it with his hands. Wow. They did say that initially on the... um the autopsy that the force was so great that they did wonder if there had been some sort of club or bat, but nothing was ever found. There was a lot of force of anger in this. Okay. It was like a passionate crime. Yeah. So, I mean, in a lot of our cases, we have great motive or people are talking about how much they dislike each other or there's a big cheating scandal or there's something that creates motive, but no physical evidence. This is the opposite. They have so much evidence, but there's no reason. They cannot find anyone that can tell them why Ken would lose it and kill his wife. So they're doing their damnedest to find that motive at this point because they want to put all the pieces together. So one possible motive was a double indemnity life insurance policy that would pay out to the tune of $96,000, which is more like $168,000 in today's money. But given that they live in this $2 million home, it did not seem like it was a likely motivation. No. 
So they got the proper warrants at this point to start digging through their finances, just to double check to make sure they're not missing something and there wasn't some great hole that Ken was in that he was trying to dig himself out of. So they're looking into the financials. And while they do that, they're also digging into the private side of the couple just to see if there was any issues that were just really behind closed doors behind these two. They were like, somebody has to know. A couple doesn't exist in a vacuum. There has to be some hint, some thread that we can pull on if it is related more to personal issues between the two. And so they did find a couple self-help books that belonged to Christine. And they were The Language of Letting Go and also another book called Breaking Free, a recovery workbook for facing codependence. So it looked like maybe she was trying to figure out how to separate from Ken or there was like also a journal that she had that it like had a lot of these themes in it. But there was no direct evidence that she was actually going to separate from Ken. She hadn't told anyone that. There was no legal papers. She didn't have an attorney. I feel like two self-help books aren't necessarily telling of like Exactly. What, so yeah. they're like, they looked in this whole damn house and that was the best they could find. What about emails? Nothing. There was nothing that indicated any sort of affair. Nothing. So then they turned to the Fitzhugh's friends, old and new, close, and some that were more like acquaintances to try to dig up any information that might indicate that the union was troubled at all. And they turned up some minor stuff. It really just wasn't that big of a deal. It was some innocuous issues like that Ken didn't like to work out and he didn't take care of himself. And Christine wished he would because she was really into fitness. Like that's like just like a typical couple. Like one person likes to work out and the other person doesn't. It just wasn't getting anywhere. And then another friend said that there was a weird thing about Ken where he never really wanted to go out and he wanted Christine to stay home with him. But she'd be like, no, I'm going to go out with my friends. And then he'd like randomly show up. And sometimes it felt like maybe he was checking up on her. Like controlling a little bit. Controlling a little bit. He was also a big mansplainer. That's oh. what they said. <laughs> he's a big mansplainer. Ooh, he's not invited. <laughs> you cannot sit with us. No. I will be a mean With your girl white socks you. and your black loafers. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there's like all these like little things, but like it didn't seem indicative of a greater. Yeah. No, I got you. Pattern of abuse or control. They just do not have a lot going on. So at this point, they are calling everyone. I mean, this is back in the day when people still had address books. I mean, they're straight up like boomers. Like they're both born in the 1940s. And so they have an address book and the cops finally were like, okay, we're going to call every single person in this address book and try to figure out what the hell is going on. And finally, they hit pay dirt when they reached a man named Dr. Thomas Shade. So this doctor lived in San Diego and he had been friends with Ken and Christine for decades. We we're going to talk about their backstory a little bit, but they'd lived in San Diego for a long time. So after a lot of convincing and hemming and hawing on the doctor's side, because he didn't really know how much to say, the doctor finally admitted that it was a commonly held belief for their Southern California friend circle from very long ago, that Christine had partaken in a years-long, almost decade-long affair with a very close friend of both Ken and Christine's. Wow, it's crazy that he knew that information. Yes, from a very long time ago. So that 
was not all the doctor had to say. He said that many people in the know were quite sure as well that this other man was the biological father of Justin, the Fitzhugh's eldest son. Wow. So that's why he's saying her son. That's They think that's the Freudian slip right there when he said her oldest son. Okay, so the doctor provided the name of this mystery man, and they were able to reach out to him, and they finally began to put the pieces of this sordid puzzle together. So we are finally going to rewind and talk about Ken and Christine's history. I know I did a little differently this week. You're probably like, I don't know anything about these people. (laughs) I know. All I know is that he murdered his wife. (laughs) Yeah, I really kind of put the cart before the horse in this one, but... I wanted it to be a surprise when he found out. So let's talk about them and how they ended up in this decades-long murder-making fatal love triangle. I know. That means he was mad for, like, a really long time. Yeah. Well, we're going to see what he might be mad about, and we'll talk about the different theories. Ken Fitzhugh was born on August 11th, 1943, in Del Mar, California. You may know it from its famed racetrack. Yes, I know where Del Mar is. Thank you. (laughs) I'm just saying it for everyone. Okay. I'm saying it for the entire class, Andrea. Put your hand down. Yes, Miss Jessie. I know where that is. Uh, Yes, he was the only child of a garage manager. I think it was like a upscale auto mechanic thing garage. I'm not really quite sure what a garage manager is. Who was also named Ken. He was Ken Sr. And a school teacher mother named Pauline, who was about 21 years younger than Ken Sr. Oh, She was 21 years Ken Sr.'s junior, (laughs) which is kind of interesting given that she was almost closer in age to her son than her husband by the time they got together and had a kid. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. In any case, those professions are like pretty standard middle class during this time period. But Ken's family was very well off due to the fact that they were the descendants of two of the wealthiest men that kind of helped set up Del Mar in the earlier days. Crazy. So it was like two of their more famous residents that they had had. His aunt and uncle built this crazy mansion called the Castle, which was well known to Del Mar residents, apparently. Years later, Ken Jr. would still stand out for his connection to the castle. Even though his parents weren't super wealthy, he was treated a little differently because they knew his aunt and uncle owned the castle. It was Crazy. a thing. I did come across an article. It was like a random like real estate agent's blog, I believe. And it said that the self-help guru, Tony Robbins, purchased it like in the very late 80s. And really? lived in it for a decade. Yeah, the motivational speaker. Yep. So apparently this place is still, it's off market right now. But I did Zillow it, of course. Of course. And its estimate now is closer to $12 million. Yeah. Tony Robbins has a shit ton of money, though. Yeah. Well, he sold it in the late 90s, but I don't know who owns it these days. Ken was smart, shy, and he was very close to his mother, Pauline. I guess that his father being 21 years older than his mother, and I'm sure it was like some sort of generational thing, too. So he was born around the turn of the century, and he was a lot older. And it was just, he just was not involved with child rearing, whether that was generational or just that he was an older dad, he just wasn't super involved. So it really did feel like it was Ken and Pauline more than anything else. And she became more than just his mom. She was kind of like his best friend too, because he didn't have a lot of friends. Oh. 
Pauline instilled a great love of music in Ken and appreciation in the value of a good education. Ken was not a popular kid. He was a little too intellectual. He was considered stuffy. And some people thought he was just a tad entitled. Which I do kind of get, though, because he's already not a super big kid. And he skipped a grade because he was so smart. So he's already, like, just so socially off because he's smaller than kids his own age. Then they skip him a grade, which just puts him kind of, like, out of sync for everything. And then he's, on top of that, an only child who mostly only converses with adults. Yeah. So it just was not setting him up socially the best, even though he was a brilliant kid by all accounts. But he's also a murderer. <laughs> he's Right now at this moment, he's an alleged murderer. Thank you very much. Well, if his mom wanted him to focus on academics, he understood the assignment. Badoomch, both figuratively and literally. Wow. Wow. He achieved an undergraduate in electrical engineering and then went on to get his MBA from Stanford. Whoa. Smart guy. In between those schools, he nurtured his love of music by playing the stand-up organ at the county fair. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say ukulele for some reason. <laughs> Nope, a lot bigger, a lot bigger than that. So he was, I think, around 21. He was going to be turning 22 maybe that summer. And that was when he met 16-year-old Christine. Uh, excuse me? So she was about to turn 17. I think he had just turned 21, and she was about to turn 17, like, in September, because really they're more like four years apart when I actually did the math, but it definitely when I was reading the book, it made it sound like it was like 16 and 22. And I was like, what? Yeah. But then I did the math on their birthdays and I was like, I think it's more like four, four and a half years. So it just must've been a weird birthday time. Mm. Still very weird. Yeah. Again, like we've talked about this in so many episodes, like age gaps aren't weird when you're old. They're weird when you are at very different developmental places. Yeah, because think about how exponential each year is when you're that age and like what you're learning and absorbing. Like, and then you kind of like plateau when you hit like 30. <laughs> and then you're just 30 in your mind forever. Well, I'm not giving him any leeway here, but I think he might have not been super mature in some ways, like in some ways he was very mature. In other ways, socially and probably dating, he wasn't as advanced. This is no excuse, but still. And they did seem to have a lot in common. They had a shared love of music, which was huge, but they were also both only children of older parents. When Christine was born in September of 1947, her parents were 42 and 47 years old. That's like 80 now. For the 40s? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, now I think especially people are having children at all different ages and a lot of people are choosing only to have one child. But in the 1940s, having older parents and being an only child by choice, or I mean, I guess if they were older, maybe it wasn't by choice, but still having only child was more rare than it is. Absolutely. Today. Absolutely. Also, Christine had been intellectually precocious herself and she had also skipped a grade. Whoa. Okay. So they have a lot in common. They have a lot in common, and that might also make sense of why he might seem a little socially behind, and she seemed very intellectually ahead. So even though she was 16 turning 17, she was already in her senior year, I believe, or beyond. She had already skipped a grade. Just like Ken, she had a drive towards perfectionism, and she desperately wanted to please one parent. In Christine's case, that was her father. It's hard to know, though, 
whether there had ever been a real driving passion in Ken and Christine's relationship or if they were just two people who had so much in common, found that they were very compatible. They enjoyed spending time together and they just kind of matched early on and thought, well, this is pretty much as good as it gets as far as finding somebody to spend your life with. Yeah, randomly without the internet. Yeah. I mean, it was just they had so many areas that aligned and they did have music as a passion together as well. So they ended up getting married pretty young and not super long after they met. They married in the summer of 1966 when Ken was about to turn 24. I think he was still 23 when they got married and Christine was only 18 years old. Wow. Christine went to San Diego State where she obtained her degree in teaching. Well, Ken took an accounting job at an aerospace engineering firm. Whoa. Yes. It was at this company in San Diego that Ken met a coworker two years later after he had started. And this is the man who would become like family to the Fitzhughes in more ways than one, apparently. His name was Robert Brown, and he went by Bob. Okay. Bob Brown. Whereas Ken was smaller in stature, very contained, he was meticulous. Bob was this big bear of a guy. He was charismatic. He had a larger-than-life, described as flamboyant personality. He was also intellectually gifted and an only child. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so they're all born in the 40s. They're all very smart. They're all only child and from the very first time that Ken brought his coworker home to have dinner at the Fitzhugh's house, they immediately, all three of them, got along extremely well. And Bob was working at the company in the accounting department while he was getting his law degree. Wow. Okay. So this was just a perfect fit. Soon after that first night where they all had dinner together, they were having dinner together several times. He was like a bachelor, I believe, at the time. So they would just be like, come over. Like, let us cook for you. Join us. We have extra food. And then that turned into spending weekends together, going on vacations together. They were getting very, very close. Ken would later say about Bob, we were best friends. For the years that we were married without children, I would say that Bob Brown was probably the brother I never had. And the brother that Christine never had and vice versa, because we were all only children. We were always doing things together all the time. It's too bad that Ken wasn't like wanting to just get in on the action, you know? <laughs> well, it would have been like a really a big, happy thruple. This is a big question about this. Yeah. So Christine and Ken had been pretty quiet, mostly conservative types. Bob was just a breath of fresh air. He was super fun. He identified as bisexual. He was the life of every party. And he ended up dragging the Fitzhughes out to clubs and into the desert to go dune bug riding and camping and partying. I guess he had like a whole group of friends that like would just like do this dune buggying and like hang out and like drop acid and stuff. And for Christine, who had gone from her authoritative father's home to her perfectionist husband's home, never dated anyone else at all, really. She got married at 18. Yeah, and she met him at 16. Yeah. This was kind of like a walk on the wild side that she hadn't anticipated. The first time in her young life that she was having fun and she felt liberated. 
And this is also, you have to remember, this is like 1968, 1969 in California. Wasn't everyone hooking up with everyone? This is the summer of love. This is all about like a time of exploration and liberation. And at that age too? Yes, she's totally young. This is the time to do those things. And it was a time in history, especially in California, where people were doing those things. As the trio grew professionally, they bought boats together, they invested in property together. By all accounts, this was looking pretty thruppily. It's V-thruple vibes. Yeah, they had nicknames for one another. They called Ken Weasel, Christine Snake, and Bob was Aardvark. I never got the story about why Christine was Snake. But Bob said Ken was a weasel because he looked like a weasel and he never let Christine know what was going on financially. Oh, That's not a good nickname. <laughs> and Bob was aardvark because apparently they went out to some restaurant one time and he pretended like the maitre d' got the name wrong when she called it. She was like Dr. So-and-so, but it sounded like aardvark. And he went over and he's like, that's me, but you mispronounced my name. It's Dr. Aardvark. And she was like, oh, I'm so sorry, Dr. Aardvark. And she sat them immediately. And so they called him Aardvark after that. Hilarious. And that was like, also, it was like a big deal to Ken and Christine because they were such rules followers that he was just this wild man who was going to do and say whatever he wanted to get whatever he wanted. And he like did drugs. And I guess they didn't really partake in the drugs, but they did a lot of drinking with him. They were like along for the ride, but only to a point. So I guess going forward, obviously, they all got close. And at some point, Bob believed it was in 1975, after they had known each other for a handful of years, that Christine refused to speak badly about Ken. She truly did love him. So she would not have outrightly said anything bad about their sex life. But she implied to Bob that she was a little bummed out because Ken seemed sexually indifferent to her. He wasn't putting out. Yes, that was what was implied. And she was still young at the time. This was like when she was only 28 years old. Which is right when you start getting super horny as a woman. (laughs) I don't know if that's true of everyone, but I'll take your word for it. (laughs) Maybe you begin to understand what you want, what you like, and how you want it for sure. I can can vibe with that. I don't know if I've had like a hornier time in my life. I definitely I hope it's still coming. I hope it's like in the future. In the 40s. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can't wait to be a horny old broad. Um, yeah. So Bob described Christine as starved for affection. Aww. That's what he said. That breaks my heart a little bit. Yeah. And obviously this is, they didn't go so far as to say this, but I'm pretty sure this is the only man she's ever been with sexually, her husband. So at this point, Bob had no problem stepping up and... Showing Christine how lovely and wonderful and sexual she was. So the big question is how much did Ken know? Because this went on for years. Exactly. Yep. Well, according to Ken, nothing. Oh, come on. (laughs) Yeah. I just like flipped a table in my head. No, there's no way. Y'all are buying boats together. Yeah. And going going on on, like desert romps. Like, come on. Yeah. But that's such an ego thing, though. He can't admit it. Exactly. Well, he said that he never suspected anything because he thought that Bob was gay and therefore he was not worried. He said that Bob had boyfriends. Sir, there's a difference between bisexual and gay. Yes. And Bob said very clearly, like on the stand later, I was always bisexual. Everyone always knew I was bisexual. Ken knew I was bisexual. Yeah. Okay. 
I mean, Bob has to know how much Ken knows, right? Well, he waffled a little bit. We're going to get into problems with Bob's memory later, too. Bob waffled a little bit. He went from like, I don't know if he knew to, I'm pretty sure he knew. Yeah. I also think, though, that there's a lot of speculation about whether this was like a threesome thing, obviously, like we've been talking about. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. And Ken didn't want that out. I think that there might have been more to this story that neither of them decided to disclose. I mean, they were so close. People around them knew in the very least that something was obviously going on with Christine and Bob, and they didn't seem like they were hiding it that much. And then there was the question of whether something had ever happened between Bob and Ken. Got it. Okay, so people had asked about that in the past too. Well, I don't know if people did, but the police certainly did when this all came out. And both of the men said outright that the other man had hit on them and they had turned the other man down. Okay. But I'm wondering if it's like more complex than that. Maybe it's not like everyone was a threesome. Maybe like, I don't know, like maybe the guys weren't involved, but they liked like watching the other person do Christine. I mean... Who knows? There could be all sorts of like different configurations of what the human spectrum of sexuality and their interests are. But by the time this all comes out, we have to remember that Christine is passed away. Exactly. And she has two adult sons that are going to read every bit of this and that anything these two men who certainly both of them care about the kids involved in this, even if one of them doesn't care about the woman involved in this, that I don't think they would say explicitly what was going on exactly in that bedroom. And I don't know. I mean, from a defense point of view, Ken can't say he knew because that gives motive. And probably from keeping ego and face with the entire world, but also his children, he can't admit he knew what was going on. I'm sure that the truth is something that we will never know exactly. And it doesn't really matter. It doesn't. I mean, also, there's the fact that, like, Bob was on drugs and also doesn't probably want to out someone if they don't want to talk about their sexuality being... Exactly. So there's a lot, a lot Bob would have certainly not talked about any of this probably for his entire life had Christine not been murdered. Of course, yeah. I mean, but there was like some other things that were pretty crazy that people were looking at as like, how did you not know? For instance, in 1981, Bob gave Christine a diamond ring, a diamond and gold ring that she wore on her wedding ring finger with her wedding band from Ken. Yeah, so that's like, come on. And it was, like, reportedly, like, way fancier and more expensive than the wedding ring he, Ken, had given her. Yeah, because Ken's not, like, passionately in love with her. Yeah. And so a lot of people, when that detail came out, they were like, as a man, you would know if another man gave your wife a ring that she was wearing with your ring on her wedding finger? Yep. That is a symbol of commitment. Yes. And love. And love. Oh, uh, certainly. So... Who knows what actually went on, but it was clear that it wasn't just sex between Christine and Bob. There's real love there, and there was clearly real love between all of them as friends. 
Yes, and trust and all of the things. Yes. So Christine got pregnant in 1977. And she did tell Bob that it was his baby. He would later report that she said she hadn't had sex with anyone else for four months before okay. she got pregnant. So she knew it was his. And Ken also knows if he's not having sex with her. That's what you would think, right? That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. And she also told Bob that the pregnancy was very much intentional. Now, this goes to what you're saying, which is Ken absolutely knew about the pregnancy. He absolutely then must have known about the affair. I mean, unless it's fucking immaculate conception. like. <laughs> and in fact, Andy, what Bob is about to say confirms that not only did Ken know about the affair, that he was in on the plot for Christine to get pregnant by Bob for a financial reason. What? Yep, this is, it gets twistier. So Bob eventually told a detective the following in May of 2001. This is from Blood Will Tell. He said in this interview, while we all lived in San Diego, I believe there was a condition. You see, they both came from pretty substantial families. I mean, by substantial, they both had some money. He had some great aunts who were worth millions, and she told me, and I believe Ken did too, that the inheritance would not happen unless there was an heir. Wow. <gasps> wow. I mean, this is like done and dusted. Close the book and throw <laughs> it at him. I mean, it's also like a soap opera. We have like a love child. There's like a inheritance motivation. I mean, I love all of this as long as you don't fucking murder your wife. Oh, clearly. Like, I love this whole setup as long as, like, everyone lives and gets to be happy. Hey, you do what you want to do as long as everyone's being honest and no one gets murdered. So he went on to say they tried for a really long time. He went to his sex doctor and something wasn't working. Then allegedly his sperm count, it was, like, way up. This is just, like, Bob kind of rambling. She told me that that was a lie and that it was just for show. I don't know. You know, I'm not a doctor. I never saw the results. All I know is that they were childless after being married for almost 10 years. Yeah. And, he said, they were both only children. They had to have kids before the money got transferred. I know that. Only because they both told me individually that the aunt's wills required them to have children. I never saw any documentation, but I knew the great aunt very well. In parentheses, he wrote, presumably Helen Thompson. And I knew Christine's parents. You know, they considered me part of the family. This could have been the coolest, like, get old together hang. It kind of makes me sad. Yeah, they could have just been, like, fam forever. Well, it's I know. not just because of Ken and Christine that this all broke up. Oh, by the way, Bob's aunt also confirmed this account. She said that Christine, when she got pregnant, I basically told her as much. Like, yes, I'm married to Ken, but we couldn't have children and we need to have children to get these millions of dollars in inheritance monies. It's a very matter-of-a-fact thing, to be honest. Yes. Which also strikes me as, just from what I've read about Ken, not so different from something he would do, you know, intellectually. No. Rationally to, you know, to inherit millions and millions of dollars. Why not? I mean, I guess this is, like, <laughs> the age-old question. It's, like, indecent proposal. Like, 
could you, you know, let your partner be with somebody else for a million dollars? I mean, this is a big one. Yeah, I know, but they were already together. They were already, like, intimate. They were, So yeah. it's, it's not even, like, letting your partner sleep with someone to get pregnant. It's totally different than that. Yes, it's already somebody they're very, very close with. You guys own a boat together. That's, like, just as much as having a kid <laughs> together. Like, let's be real. Well, if inheritance was the desired outcome of having a baby, it worked. By the year 2000, Ken had inherited something like $2.6 million in today's money. Well, Christine had inherited close to $775,000, so close to three quarters of a million dollars. Just by being married to him? No, she was an only child of family that had means as well. So she had inherited from her own family. And I don't know if her family had the same conditions, but regardless, she had her own money that she inherited from her family. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with, like, the must-have kid thing. I think that, like, there's so many ways that someone could responsibly use an inheritance for philanthropic purposes without having a child. Yes, there was also no proof in paperwork that this is true so I mean it's not to say that they hadn't implied it like they hadn't said like well we really want the money to go to somebody who's perpetuating the Fitzhugh name like who knows they could have said it but no one could find an actual will or document that said the money will only go to an heir yeah so we don't know like let's not put this on the great ants because <laughs> we don't know if I'm not trying to be true. mean to the great ant I'm just saying I like it is also at the end of the day it's your money Nobody is entitled to it. You can donate it all to a cat rescue if you want. Yeah. I mean, that'd be like badass. (laughs) You and the cats. Andy, fast forward 20 years. Echo's moved out and she has 24 cats. I mean, I don't doubt that that'll be the case. I'll be like, how? (laughs) Like, I don't have to meal prep in the morning. I need 20 cats. No, you'll be meal prepping like a raw food diet for each one of your 24 cats instead. Well, by the time baby Justin was born in March of 1978, Bob had taken a job in Fresno, but he was still very much a part of Justin's life. In fact, here's another sign that he was a little bit closer than just a friend. Bob had flown down to be in the delivery room with Ken and Christine. Yeah, because it's his fucking baby. Yeah. Over the years, Bob spent Father's Day with Christine and Justin, as well as his own birthday, and visited for Justin's birthday. So cute. Officially, Bob was known as Justin's godfather. Aww. The Fitzhughes did go on to have another son, and as far as I know, this was biologically Ken's. I don't know for sure. I didn't hear anything about that child and the results of that DNA test. He was the younger brother. I do know that the younger son looked considerably more like Ken than Justin did. I mean, that's awesome. You each get one. Yeah. That's great. That's so cool. And then they get to grow up together. Like, that's amazing. But it was, like, very obvious that Justin looked a lot like Bob. In fact, that this was one, like, on the forensic files, they say that this is actually the big tip-off, is that the investigators saw a family portrait hanging in the house, and it was like, one of these things is not like the other. Like... He was towering over his father. He was giant. He's a tall man. And everyone said that he was actually the spitting image of Bob, like to the point where I guess Christine brought Justin to one of Bob's family reunions. And everyone was like commenting on how much he looked just like Bob and like he did when he was young and everything. I mean, also the first always looks like the dad too. Always. Yeah. Absolutely always. The relationship between the Fitzhughes and Bob did eventually fracture. 
Ken and Christine settled in Palo Alto, where Christine taught, and Ken went into business for himself as a real estate developer and consultant. And they got real family-focused, as you do when you grow up and you have kids. Now you can't be dune buggying and going out and partying. They were really focused on raising their children and giving them security in a safe, quaint, suburban setting. That was the life they wanted. It was the life they'd always planned. Bob, however, was plagued with substance abuse and general addiction issues. His life was very far from family friendly. His health was deteriorating after decades of heavy drinking and drugs. And he would end up frittering away both his health and wealth over these binges. Bob reported that he had once lost $250,000 in a single night of gambling. He said he went to five different casinos because he hit the 50 grand spend limit at all five over the night and just kept losing money. horrifying. Yeah, I mean, that's like real addiction. I actually love that they have that limit. I didn't know that they had a limit like that. I mean, I don't know if they still do or like what the big spenders do because I know big spenders can spend more than 50 grand. Yeah, but that's different if you're in like a high roller. Yeah, so he lost everything and he lost his integrity eventually as well. He eventually got disbarred for selling stolen electric typewriters. I guess like that's a precursor to like a word processor computer situation. And he also, like, he got in trouble for that and he was almost disbarred. And then he got officially disbarred because he started taking money for legal services that he never provided. Yeah. So he is not doing well. Ken and Christine really did try everything to help him. They hosted interventions. They footed the bill multiple times for pricey rehab programs. Even Justin, as a teenager, went to go speak to him at one of these rehab facilities and was like, will you get it together for me? But he just could not. He was in the thick of it. The relationship between Bob and the Fitzhughes came officially to an end in 1995 when Bob relapsed really hard. And they had been on some sort of family beach vacation and something bad happened, but we don't know exactly what because neither Ken nor Bob really wanted to talk about it in specifics. But Bob did say eventually, and this is from Blood Will Tell, what happened was on that trip, I fouled up again and I drank too much, took drugs and made a fool of myself and I embarrassed people. And with that, Ken and Christine both said, and the boys said that they didn't want to see me anymore. They didn't want to watch me kill myself. That was the next morning and they packed their things up and they went home and I went home and that was the end of it. Oh, I know. Breaks my heart. I mean, what are you going to do though? They're parents and they have to protect their kids who are, I think, teenagers at this point and- They tried so many times to help him. I mean, there's nothing that they can do. Yeah. But of course, Andy, this was not the end. The police then requested that Justin take a DNA test. And it turned out that the stories and rumors and innuendo were all true. Bob Brown was biologically Justin Fitzhugh's father. So the detectives at that point wondered if this was the catalyst for murder. I mean, had Ken somehow, somehow had his head so buried in the sand that he had just discovered the decades-old infidelity? No, there was another thing, and this was a big one. According to Bob, Christine no longer wanted to live a lie. 
So Bob said that he hadn't talked to Christine in years since the event in 1995 and that she had called him either very late in December of 1999 or very early in January of 2000. He could not really remember because he was back on drugs. But he said that he was, of course, remembered this conversation because they hadn't talked in so long. And she told him that she planned to finally tell Justin that Bob was his biological father. She was going to wait until he graduated from college. Okay. And he said that Bob had wanted her to tell him for years. So she was like, I wanted to tell you that I'm finally going to tell him. And Bob was like, well, I don't need to obviously be there for that conversation, but can I come to his graduation? Because I'd really like to see it. Yeah, that's huge. Yep. And she said, well, it's in June. Sure, you can come. I'll keep you posted. But Bob said that Christine never followed up. And in fact, that was the very last time that Bob ever spoke to Christine. Yeah, because I bet she brought it up to Ken and Ken had a fucking meltdown and killed her. And that's exactly what the police thought, that they had finally found the real motive. That Christine had made it clear there might have even been an ongoing argument about it, about when they were going to tell him, were they going to tell him after he was 18, when they were going to tell him when he went to college. And, and Christine, it seems like she finally put her foot down and said, it's gone on long enough. We've waited long enough. There's no more excuses after he graduates from college. Yeah, because I feel like 18 is the age that you would want to talk to your kid about that. And also the age that kids probably want to find like their birth parents if they're well adopted yeah I mean but or... this is he's 22 he's graduating from college I know that's what I'm saying I feel like he, she probably wanted to yeah they had kicked the can down the road for a long time and they think that it was coming up now we're talking this is Cinco de Mayo and his graduation was like a month away it was happening whether he liked it or not and it also is kind of implied that if she did want Bob to come to the graduation, that maybe she wanted to tell Justin before. Yeah. It's so angering that, like, she died for that. Yeah. Well, there's another thing. So they dug into the financials at the same time, and they discovered that the Fitzhugh's finances were a disaster. Yeah. I mean, I was, like, predicting that from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, whenever you have a guy whose wife died and nobody can quite say what he does for a living. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the weasel. The weasel was tucking the some weasel. stuff away. Exactly. So they were like, yeah, they were not doing as well. And everyone said that Ken, because he has an MBA from Stanford, she's a music teacher. She's just a pianist. Like, she's like. I am the artistic one in this family. You have an MBA from Stanford. You, of course, manage the money of our household. Of course. I mean, I would do the same thing. I do the same thing practically. Like I know of like about most of our money and where it goes and I have access to all the accounts, but I mostly let Nathaniel handle it. It's like the most likely that Christine did not know that they were in financial trouble at all. But they said that Christine was making more money than Ken was. He was making almost nothing. She was a traveling elementary school music teacher. Crazy. And she was bringing in considerably more money than Ken was. In fact, like he was basically living off of his inheritance. And they said in less than two years, in 1998, he had $400,000 in his investment account. And by the time that... Christine was murdered. Only two years later, he only had 20000 Wow. Now, Christine still had her inheritance money. 
But this is why I think she didn't know about it because he could have just asked her. Instead, if he kills her, he gets the money from the life insurance. He gets her estate from her inheritance. He also is the sole owner of the house. They also found out that he had been bouncing checks and that he had taken out a considerable loan against the house. Maybe Ken thought, this is it. This is the way to keep my family together. No one will ever know. My son won't know I'm not his biological father. And I could keep my lifestyle. I can keep my ego together. And the one threat to it, my beautiful wife, will be gone. It's horrible. Well, Ken's case went to trial on July 2nd, 2001. And the prosecution posited that Christine's desire to tell Justin the truth about his parentage was what caused Ken to snap. They think that even more than the money, although the money was a factor as well. The prosecutor continued, though, to say that no one really could know for sure why Ken killed Christine. Only Ken could, and he was not telling. But the state would easily prove that it was indeed Ken who killed Christine as there was an overwhelming amount of evidence that pointed to him. So it doesn't really matter why he killed her and the state doesn't have to prove that there was a motive. They just have to prove that he did it. I think like the detectives like figuring out the motive though. I I do too. I think, I mean, for me, it's the way more interesting part of it, which is why we have love murder and not just a reboot of Forensic Files as our podcast. The motive I find very compelling just to know what, what motivates humans to do something so extraordinarily horrible. But yeah, they're like, look, even if you don't buy our motive, it doesn't really matter because we just have to prove he did it. And here's a whole bunch of evidence. For example, on the day of the murder... Ken's story did not check out. He had claimed that he had been in Belmont, which is like, I think, nine, nine and a half miles from Palo Alto. He said he was there to look at a vacant lot for sale, but his phone records placed him in Palo Alto at the exact time that Christine was murdered. Okay, yeah, bro. Yeah. The injuries that Christine had suffered were not even remotely consistent with a fall. It was clear that Ken had staged the scene. Obviously, the luminol evidence, and then, like we talked about, a burglar would have no reason to do this. It just did not make sense that an intruder would do so. Also, they talked about the blood drops on Ken's sneakers were actually diluted with water. So it suggested that he'd been wearing those shoes while he had been cleaning Christine's blood from the kitchen floor. So maybe he was using water to clean, and somehow he had splashed, like, the bloody water on his shoes. The prosecutor also argued for the financial motive. Ken was broke while Christine still had money from her inheritance. He also would obviously receive the insurance money like I just talked about and be the sole owner of the home, the $2 million home. The defense argued that there was no way that Ken could have killed Christine to prevent her from revealing their son's paternity Because Ken himself had zero idea that Justin was not his biological child, and he did not find out that information until after Christine's death. How? He said that he had absolutely no knowledge of the affair. This is when he says on the stand, it would have never occurred to me that they were having an affair because Bob was gay, because that's what he believed. Or he says he believed, rather. The defense argued that Christine's death was clearly 
no simple accident. So they said, look, we agree with you. This was clearly not an accident. Somebody killed Christine and it is tragic. But there's no real solid proof that it was Ken who killed her, they said. So they had experts come up and say, here's all the problems with luminol evidence. There's a certain amount of cleaning agents that can trigger a response. Sometimes there's urine protein. So they have these two small dogs. Maybe the dog peed all over the kitchen and that's triggering the response. So they said there's a million things that could have happened here that make it not blood. So, you know, just don't pay attention to that luminol evidence. And then they're like, oh, let's talk about cell towers. They got an expert that came on and said, occasionally a cell tower can be overwhelmed or busy and can direct a call to another tower. And they're like, clearly that's what happened. Obviously the Belmont tower was busy and it Where pinged in Palo Alto. Where did they find these experts? Like literally on the street corner? Like I don't understand. Like, oh my gosh, I know. So they're like, they just were basically... They didn't have a very cohesive argument. They're just like, it's kind of like a goalie who's just trying to like do their best to pop the ball out with like no real like <laughs> strategy or anything. They're just like, okay, I'm just going to hit the balls as they fly at me. Like, no, not that one. No, not that one. Because there wasn't anything very cohesive about their argument other than trying to disprove all of the scientific evidence that the state had. Which it's scientific evidence. Yes. <laughs> yes. So they're like, okay. They also, of course, tried to like demean Bob. They're like, this guy has had a history of, you know, substance abuse issues. He was apparently on some sort of pain medication while he was in one of his police interviews. Pain medication isn't illegal. That time, I don't think it was recreational. I think he was just very ill and was using it for actual medical purposes. But still, they were like, you can't trust anything this guy says. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, obviously, he'd been disbarred. So there's just a lot, like, you can't trust this guy. So they're trying to, like, cut away from Bob. They also said that they could not find a record of Christine calling Bob and saying that. Like, they couldn't find a phone record. Now, the prosecution argued that they had just checked. I don't know if they had checked both her cell and her home phone. But they were like, there's a million phones she could have called from. She could have called from her work. Do you think she's going to call Bob, like, at her home with her husband who doesn't want her to talk to him. So they pointed that out. And then they ended up, after all of this, with the prosecution already pointing out that it seemed very unlikely that a burglar would have tried to cover up the murder, they decided that that was what they were going with. They were like, okay, well, we need a killer here because it's so clear that she didn't fall down the stairs. So we're going to go with... A burglar was interrupted in the basement. They came through the basement door and they were trying to get in the house that way. Christine surprised them and the murder happened there. That's why they were trying to disprove all of the kitchen stuff. And their argument was, and I always say at the time, guys, because I'm not up on every state's legal rules, but at the time in California, maybe still, who knows? I guess lawyers in California know. <laughs> but there was a three strike rule. And it meant that if you had been convicted of three felonies, that you would be sentenced automatically to life in prison. And so the defense was arguing that maybe this person, this imaginary person who broke in, maybe they were a three striker. And so instead of just running from the scene, they decided to cover it up so they couldn't even remotely be connected 
to the crime. That's what they're going through. And then the funniest part to me is that in the closing arguments, the defense attorney insinuated that the police had rushed to judgment or maybe even set Ken up because they didn't want their property values to go down. Because a husband who kills his wife, it seems like an isolated event, but, you know, murdering burglar that's like casing the joint would bring the property values down. And the author, Carlton Smith, is like, you think that the police that are working in this district can afford to have a house in Palo Alto? You think they care about the property values? This is the most like never ever land story defense that I've ever heard. It's like so made up. Well, they didn't have a lot to go with. Obviously, it was stacked against them. So they're just throwing the spaghetti at the wall here. I mean, they even put Ken on the stand and it did not go well. I mean, he just wasn't likable. And I think that his defense attorney had asked him, trying to humanize him or his relationship with Christine, maybe. And he had asked him, how do you feel? Like, this is his own attorney. How do you feel about Christine after finding out that Justin is not your biological son? And Ken said, quote, I think Christine is still the fine lady that I knew for many years. I think of her as being a wonderful wife and a devoted mother and a dedicated teacher. None of those things have changed. But I do think that perhaps being a human being, she had human frailties and temptations that we all face. He has like no soul. No soul. And that's what, so Carlton uh, Smith wrote, was this devastating or what? Asked how he felt about his wife of 33 years, tragically murdered by, according to his defense, an unknown intruder. Ken's response was barely human. It did not go unnoticed by the jury that Ken never said that he loved his wife. And this, if any time, had been the time to do just that. It was pitched to him. Slow ball. The attorney's like, I'm sending you the softball, buddy. Like, at least get on first base. So in the end, the jury did not buy the intruder story. I would have guessed that. They also did not buy the accident theory. I would have guessed that. However, they did disagree with the prosecution that it was premeditated. I could see that. They said that somebody as smart as Ken would not have had the items from the murder in his car. This seemed to them clearly in the ferocity of the attack seemed like a serious crime of passion. I mean, it could be something as far as she came home and she was like having lunch and she's like, I'm going to do it. I've decided it's time. And he lost it. Who knows? But the jury just did not see it. And in fact, there was some other things that they did not believe they did not actually believe that Christine did call Bob and say that to him. They were heartbroken for Bob. And they actually said that they believed he loved her more than Ken had ever loved her. And that the lie was to secure justice for the woman he had loved. Oh, my God. That, like, literally gave me chills. Yeah. So they were like, we don't believe Bob, but we believe he lied for the best of purposes. And, of course, they also believed that Ken had absolutely for sure known that Justin was Bob's biological son. Especially given that Freudian slip about her oldest son. And I think that, like, most of the hetero guys on this uh, on this jury panel could not get over wearing another man's ring next to yours. It just was not computing for them. They were like, really? 
So Ken Fitzhugh was found guilty of second degree murder. Okay. Still life in prison? It was. Ken was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. And he did not end up serving his complete sentence because he was paroled on compassionate release in February of 2012. And he died of Parkinson's disease at the age of 69, only eight months after he was let out. Ken did maintain his innocence until the very bitter end. Wow. I'm glad that hopefully maybe his kids got to spend time with him before he passed away out of jail, which is nice. Yes. And I know that Justin was still supportive of his father while being very honest about everything that was going around. Like he was very clear about what he felt like he knew about his family and everything. I could not find any information about whether there was any reconciliation with the sons and Bob. And I also don't know because Bob Brown is such a common name. That's a lot for him to go through too as a recovering addict. Given that they talked about how Bob had a lot of health issues, I would be very surprised if he was still around. But I think that you're right about what the jury said, Andy, and how it is chills inducing. He had made a big cock up of his life and various ways. And I think he was trying to do one good thing at the end to serve justice for a woman he had loved, but he had been unable to love in the way she needed and deserved. She also could have called him from office. She also could have called them from the school for sure. We don't know. I feel like that would have been something I would have wanted to share with him. Maybe it could like give him a light at the end of the tunnel where he could try to get clean because she obviously cared about him. You know, like there's motivations with that. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, Bob's an unreliable narrator. Ken's a murderer. And we don't have Christine's story, which is, I think, the only version of the real truth we would have gotten. Well, that story was very love murdery. It was. I told it in a different way because I thought actually about the law enforcement's, like the detective's journey in this, which is like, these people have it all together. They're also, they look very upper middle class, have it all together in their 50s, like grown up kids in college, like lots of friends, nice neighborhood. Like it is just like you're almost like grandparently looking people and everyone who was close to them at that period of their life in their Palo Alto portion of their life only knew them to be devoted to one another. So it was a real mystery. And we so often see people reacting to things that happened a week ago, a month ago, maybe a year ago, but something that happened more than two decades earlier, that's wild. In conclusion, Andy and everyone, if you have a doubt about your child's paternity, go on, Maury Povich. Don't go on a murdering spree. Or Springer, whatever. <laughs> whatever it is that says you are or are not the father. I also feel like in this case, an open marriage and honesty would have just been an amazing solution. Honesty is always the best policy. Whether you're in an open marriage or you're grappling with paternity issues, adoption issues, the age-appropriate earliest time to do it is the best. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.